You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The proper place for the discussion of the virtues is probably within a, a course, a separate course on moral theology, but it is also important to consider them at least for one lecture here in our discussions of spiritual theology, for they are important aspects of the life of Christian holiness. Whether considered philosophically or theologically, a virtue in general is defined as an excellence of character, something that is directed toward our acting well. Some of the moral virtues can be obtained by natural means, that is, by the regular practice that we undertake in doing a certain deed until it becomes habitual, until it becomes second nature to us, so that we can, with a relative ease and a certain pleasure even, great effectiveness, act from this source of character. I see this sometimes, for instance, with my mother who's in a nursing home now, who's in a memory support unit, and yet she still has such a great niceness about her and a great politeness. And one time recently she was looking about some of the people who are her nurses there and said, I don't know who these people are, but I try to be nice to them. <laughs> and it was very dear of her, but what it shows is that even as her mind has become a little weaker and her memory is failing her, nonetheless she acts out of character, acts out of something that is just very deep within her. There is, in the case of a person, an acquired disposition that tends to make it relatively easy to accomplish these particular deeds. The philosophers have spoken of these and have tried to enumerate them, and I think in particular of what are called the four cardinal virtues that a Plato and an Aristotle and many a philosopher since has chosen to concentrate upon. Prudence, practical wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. These have long been thought to be the most important of the virtues, and yet there are rafts of others. Some are subdivisions of those, and others can be enumerated. For a discussion of these, one is well advised to look at Book 4 of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. As regards spiritual theology, what we have already noticed is that any of those natural moral virtues can also be acquired by us as infused virtues. They're gifts of God by grace, and we can also achieve these things by God's gift. Some theologians have been a little suspicious of the notion of natural virtue. Throughout these lectures, I have preferred to take a relatively Thomistic line, which indicates that we can achieve certain virtues by our own acquisition of good habits, but that we also can achieve these virtues by the infusion. But some theologians have been a little suspicious of natural virtues apart from faith. I think of someone like Augustine, who in his book City of God and elsewhere in his writings warned that virtues without faith risk being false virtues. Now for some people this has been interpreted to mean that they really weren't virtues at all unless faith were a component of it. Others interpret it, and I guess I fall in that camp, that Augustine is simply saying that any of these natural virtues without faith is extremely susceptible to pride and that pride can disorganize even an otherwise outstanding virtue. I would argue that Augustine's City of God is organized on that premise that Rome fell especially because of her own weight, because of a certain pride that 
pagans had experienced and exhibited in Rome and that they failed to connect it with worship of the true God, with a genuine and true faith. Other theologians, however, and other interpreters of Augustine have taken what I regard to be a more moderate and correct stance, namely by simply distinguishing the moral virtues in terms of the means by which they are acquired. And so that when Augustine is saying virtue without faith, he's talking about the danger of pride in a purely natural virtue, but that virtue could very well be acquired in a natural means and then supplemented by faith and especially by charity, which in many theologians held to be the form of all the virtues and that which keeps everything well ordered. In addition to the moral virtues, to which we'll hopefully have a bit of time to come back at the end of this lecture, there are a set of virtues that are even more important for the spiritual life, and they are called the theological virtues or the supernatural virtues, precisely because they are the way by which an individual is in direct relation to God, namely faith, hope, and charity. Faith by which we believe that there is a God and believe in God and accept whatever he has revealed, Hope, by which we trust that God will be faithful to his promises and someday will allow us the enjoyment of heaven. And thirdly, charity, by which we love God in and for himself and love what he loves for his sake. Let me use the balance of time in this lecture then to consider these three theological or supernatural virtues and especially their relation to the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the supernatural virtue by which we are enabled to believe in God and in what he has revealed to be true. Unlike the many things that we hold to be true on the basis of evidence in this life or the normal patterns of reasoning that we undergo, the assent that we give in faith is an assent that we give on the authority of God himself and thus an assent that requires a movement of grace within us in order for us by response to give our free submission. But rather than entering deeply into the great discussions about the psychology of all this, admittedly an important part of the subject of fundamental theology, let me simply concentrate on a couple of points that are more relevant to spiritual theology. First, faith is the beginning of our relationship with God. And so we do very well to appreciate, as the letter to Ephesians likes to emphasize, that the grace of faith is a divine gift. And not only that it's a gift, but that we do very well to beg God to strengthen our faith and to give us to persevere in faith. With the divine help that grace of faith gives, we will be able to cast away as things that are likely to be dangers to our faith, including a kind of a intellectual pride that can block intellectual assent. Any number of people, I think, have suffered from a sort of an intellectual arrogance so that they cannot submit themselves to what Revelation is teaching. Here I think a very dramatic account of this is given by Augustine's Confessions. Early on in that book he describes at considerable length the enormous intellectual pride that he himself felt in his own accomplishments and the accomplishments of the classical pagan world. And for the longest time he could not bring himself to give the assent of faith to what it is that his mother knew as the Christian religion and to the faith to which he was being summoned. And it took a great moment of faith, a great divine communication, an infusion of faith for him to be able to respond freely as indeed he does in book 7 and book 8 descriptions in the Confessions. What we can do, especially if we have been privileged to receive the grace of faith, is to make much prayer in faith as well as much serious study of Catholic doctrine. I commend you for undertaking these ICU courses, 
but it's also a matter of cultivating that personal side and integrating what we've learned in a spiritual life so as to increase our knowledge about the faith and to increase the obedience of faith so that we are ready to give our assent to what the church teaches following what Christ has told us. Especially after a period of initial fervor, after a, an initial conversion, for instance, or an enormous conversion that takes place during life, a conversion from sin, one will sometimes find periods of dryness or times when adversities seem to crop up of various types, and one will have great temptation to fall away or to grow cold. One must be sure to endure these things and try to see God in faith in spite of them, not to let worldly criteria enter as the new principles for our judgment. Part of this is simply acknowledging and remembering and keeping to mind that God is ever the same, regardless of our own fluctuations of opinion or feeling or desire. Now, correlative to this virtue of faith are some of the Holy Spirit's gifts that we were discussing back in Lecture 5, in particular, the gifts of understanding and of knowledge. The motto of medieval philosophy and theology, fides quirens intellectum, namely faith seeking understanding, often is thought to refer largely to philosophically acquired understanding. But another aspect of that motto is extremely pertinent here, namely that the phrase fides quirens intellectum, faith seeking understanding, very much refers to the prayerful request for the supernatural gift of understanding, for the sense of intellectually getting what it is that the faith holds, and having the virtue of knowledge by which to judge things in light of faith. In this gift, what God gives us through the graces of the Holy Spirit is an intuitive grasp of the meaning of various revealed truths, so that the person of faith will be ready in faith to assent to these truths. By way of example, one might consider here the understanding that finally dawned on the disciples at Emmaus. That is, they left Jerusalem filled with a certain discouragement over the crucifixion of Christ. And it is only because the Lord appears to them on the way and begins to open up to them the meaning of the scriptures that finally at the moment when he breaks the bread, they suddenly do understand what it is that he had been telling them and understand so much of what the scriptures had prophesied about Christ. Likewise, one thinks of how St. Paul eventually came to understand the meaning of so many of the things he had long practiced within his cultivation of Pharisee devotion. He comes to understand and tells us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, about his own subsequent understanding of what biblical symbols had really meant. In a similar fashion, the gift of knowledge refers not just to cognition in the abstract that is acquired by our normal human ways, by evidence and abstraction from data, careful reasoning, but refers to the gift of a divinely aided ability to judge the way in which faith bears on our relationships to other creatures, by the way in which faith tells us something about our progress and path toward our ultimate end. I think it's by this gift of knowledge that sometimes preachers are aided in knowing what it is they need to say to a congregation. And I know the crucial need to pray before even preparing to preach, let alone before stepping up to a pulpit. Likewise, spiritual directors, I think, are extremely likely to be given this grace and ought to take advantage of it in trying to understand the persons who are under their care and under their guidance, trying to know what to say and how it is that we need to speak to those who are under our care, what it is that that person really needs to see and to understand from God, because it is God who has got to do the work 
And we as ministers have to try to stay out of the way and to try to be helpful with what we say and what we do. The second great theological virtue is the virtue of hope. Hope is the virtue by which we trust in God for the help that we need to reach eternal blessedness with God in heaven. As we grow in this hope of heaven, there are all sorts of dangers that need to be avoided, in particular the vices of presumption as well as the vice of despair. A presumption, presuming that we're going to get it without having to do what it is that God asks, or a despair that nothing will ever let us get to this particular accomplishment. It is important, I think, constantly in cultivating this virtue of hope that God gives us to realize that without God's grace, there is nothing that we could do in the supernatural order. St. John discusses this in the Gospel at chapter 15, number 5. It is also crucial to call to mind the love that God has for us is unwearied, never wearying, and that in God's grace we can do all things. St. Paul has a healthy sense of this in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4. To cultivate this divine gift of hope, we do well constantly to raise our thoughts to heaven and to beg God for a certain appropriate detachment from earthly things. As C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but rather is one of those things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. This is a theme that C.S. Lewis develops at great length, but I think he's only picking up and developing a theme that is so common, for instance, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, where the figure of Solomon, for example, in the book that is called The Wisdom of Solomon, speaking to his fellow kings of the earth, likes to emphasize that they must pray vigorously for wisdom, and then they will be able to do their task well as the kings of the earth. And he has that strong sense of the need to concentrate on the things of heaven, precisely to have a sense of justice and a sense of what it is that the requirements of social charity are and the service of the world, of our neighbor, and of the poor. The gift of the Holy Spirit that most directly supports the virtue of hope, Aquinas tells us, is the gift called fear of the Lord. For this gift communicates to us a readiness to submit everything about oneself to God's will, both out of fear of punishment, but especially out of that filial reverence, what it is to be a son of God and not ever wanting to fail one's father. Rather, have a humble reverence and love for him that will give one the new energy to carry out everything that one does for the father whom one wants to please. The sort of fear here thus is not a servile fear, but rather is a filial fear to avoid sin because it offends God and we would never want to offend him and a sense of fear that we should ever be separated from him, and hence the cultivation of a great attraction and a desire for unity with him. The third great theological virtue is the virtue of charity. This is the virtue by which we love God for himself above everything else, and then love our neighbors as ourselves for God's sake. By our natures we are creatures of God who bear his image by the very fact of our rationality. But by the virtue of charity, we become not just creatures of God, but children of God, and therefore can enter into a kind of friendship with Him. The ancient philosophers 
were very much doubtful that one could ever be a friend of God, that God was so utterly transcendent and different. And yet part of what we as Christians have been given to know is that God, for all the fact that He is utterly transcendent, the creator of the world, nonetheless has entered this world, has come to us as the incarnate Word, and has made it possible for friendship and even for sonship for becoming the children of God. As St. Paul tells us, faith will yield in heaven to the vision of God, and hope will yield to the enjoyment of that for which we longed. But charity will abide. During this life, charity is the form of all the other virtues. And when the great theologians like Thomas Aquinas call charity the form of the other virtues, I think they mean the sense of form in the sense of mold, that some of our natural loves can sometimes grow distorted and be dissevered from the proper relationship. And so what the form of charity is, is kind of like a mold that takes that which has gone its own way and pulls it back until it finally is structured rightly. It's in this sense that charity orders all the rest of the virtues, not just to pride in our own accomplishment, the thing that Augustine feared might be the undoing of our natural virtues, but now orders them and directs them and shapes them and forms them so that all of our various loves and all of our various attachments, all of our various inclinations will be directed toward God whom these attachments and inclinations and energies and powers within us ought to serve. It is a matter then of having charity fashion and direct and transform all the various parts of us so that we, with our whole mind and heart and soul and strength, are ready to give God the service that He requires. So long as we remain pilgrims on this earth, it is a matter of seeking the right way to God, and there is always room for charity to increase by increasing in the intensity with which we love God as our ultimate end and love every other creature that we come to love in and for God. Even in heaven, charity, at least some theologians think, will continue to increase, that there will be an infinite desire for God infinitely increasing. St. Gregory of Nyssa, for instance, corrects his own mentor in theology, Origen. Origen had thought that perhaps the fallen angels fell because they were kind of bored with God. They had a satiety like one sometimes gets after Thanksgiving dinner when one is just bored with food having had too much of it. And Gregory of Nyssa corrects Origen saying, Whatever the problem with the fall of the angels was, it can't be that, that God who is infinitely greater than we will always be infinitely attractive and that we'll grow in love for Him infinitely even as our capacity increases. So too in heaven our charity for God will be unwearied and undiminished. Now to love ourselves or our neighbor for any reason except for God's sake is an act of natural human love rather than an act of charity. And hopefully what we want to do is combine these things so that charity will properly direct and shape and form our natural human loves. The natural human love by which we're attracted toward that which we perceive as good is quite right for us. It proceeds according to our nature. And yet the nature is wounded and the nature is limited. And hence what we need to do is to let charity perfect our natural loves. One way in which to begin to grasp what is so different and distinctive about charity is to consider the two greatest acts of charity that have ever been done, namely the creation of the world and the redemption of the world. God created the world ex nihilo. God created the world from nothing and modeled it simply upon Himself for there was nothing else upon which to model it. As such, He was not providing for Himself something that He lacked, but rather was bestowing His goodness, bestowing His own love, and creating being and goodness 
precisely by what he gave. There was nothing that attracted him, but rather he communicates his good and diffuses it by his own free choice to share his goodness when he makes a world. Similarly, in the case of the redemption of the world, it was not that there was anything lacking to God in the absence of souls, but rather, in our sinful human predicament, it was not God's need, but our need that God was addressing. And what he does in the goodness that is poured out in the redemption of Jesus upon the cross is the restoration of goodness, the recreation of goodness, where it was lacking in the world, by a free choice of God to give himself. Our charity toward neighbor ought to follow this model, at least as best we can in our creaturely state. We cannot create things ex nihilo. We cannot put all the goodness back into the world by the act of the redemption that Christ himself did. And yet, our own acts of charity toward neighbor, like acts of charity toward self, ought to be modeled upon the charity of God and ought to be guided by the love that God has for us and the love that he summons us to have for him. This is why an Augustine can so strongly insist that the reason why we should love our neighbor as ourself is that what we ought to learn to see is the image of God that is present in neighbor or the image of God that is in self. And hence a rightly ordered, well-disciplined self-love and a rightly ordered, well-disciplined love of neighbor, always mindful of the image of God who is there, which we want better and better to reflect so that we can be the likeness of God in whose image we are. St. Thomas Aquinas informs us that the gift of the Holy Spirit that is especially supportive of charity is the gift of wisdom. For by this gift we are enabled to judge rightly about divine things, and it belongs to the wise to give order and direction. Here I think by way of example we might do well to think of St. Catherine of Siena. She was at best poorly or rudely educated by natural means, and yet she was given by God tremendous gifts, the gift of wisdom especially, such that she went all the way to Avignon in France to summon the popes to come back to Rome. There was a sense of ordering and directing things because of the gift of wisdom that God gave her. One likewise thinks of certain modern figures. I think of St. Maximilian Kolbe, who when he was canonized was called a martyr of charity and for whom the gift of wisdom, especially at the end of his life, but I think all the way through, had been given such that it raised his charity to heroic levels so that he could love God and neighbor purely and without admixture of self-interest, but rather be concerned for the family man whom he saw about to be punished and offered to replace him. Let me take the remainder of the time that is available to us in this particular lecture to just give a little bit of time to the consideration of those moral virtues, having now discussed at least briefly the supernatural virtues or theological virtues. In the subject of spiritual theology, we need to give some attention to this subject, moral virtues, which is properly covered within moral theology, because the formation of our own characters always remains our personal responsibility. Honoring this duty of character formation requires a very realistic assessment of our native temperament and a prudent concern for cultivating the natural moral virtues, mindful that grace always builds on and perfects our nature. As the philosopher Yves Simone wisely reminds us in his book, The Tradition of Natural Law, nature need not always refer to the undeveloped beginning state of an organism, but rather can refer to the completed, the healthily developed, the really accomplished state. And he's so mindful that things like 
good government in society, or that the development of virtue is natural. Admittedly, it's acquired, it's developed, it's carefully worked on, but it's natural in that it's the real natural perfection or completion of the potencies present in a given organism or given in a certain society, a group of people that requires virtue for its common life together. While the study of virtue is really better connected within the study of moral theology, we do it a little bit here in spiritual theology precisely because of the fact that we are united as body and soul, matter and form, composite human persons. Perhaps we could review for just a minute the four cardinal virtues. Prudence refers to that intellectual and moral virtue by which we know how to deliberate well and come to a decision. It is a matter of learning to see the world, I think, with sort of realistic glasses, neither over-optimistically nor over-pessimistically, but seeing a situation clear-sightedly, seeing it for what it is. And then it is, secondarily, the matter of moving to a decision after an appropriate amount of deliberation. We all know of some people who are simply paralyzed with indecision and cannot get to the point of making a decision in appropriate time, and others who are reckless in the way that they come to decisions. What this virtue of prudence or practical wisdom is about is precisely good deliberation, realistic in its nature, and appropriate timing in decision making. And here, the gift of the Holy Spirit that is most supportive is the gift of counsel, by which we have the power to judge correctly about what to do, what not to do, in situations where there is often relatively little time to reflect, or we don't have all the information that we might need, and we must make some kind of decision. And likewise, there is the matter of giving good advice to others, and we pray for the gift of counsel so that we know what to say and how to give advice, granting that we're not inside the other person and do not know all of what is taking place within them. The gift of temperance, which deals with the moderation of our desires for sensory pleasure, whether we're dealing with it as the natural virtue or as something under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the power of reason and the light of faith, is something so important for the spiritual life precisely because of the strength that our various desires can have, the strength of our desires for pleasures of taste or for the pleasures of sex. These things need to be correctly channeled so that we can give praise and glory to God. It is not a matter of repressing things, it is not a matter of trying to eliminate them, but is a matter rather of moderating them precisely so that we can give God the glory thereby. As in the case of supernatural virtue of hope, so too here the gift of fear of the Lord is especially supportive of moderation. Why? Well, because with fear of the Lord we can be mindful of some of the punishments that are due to sin, but also because of that great filial reverence, that great devotion to God as Father, which the fear of the Lord is intended to provide us, and it can give us a sense of the importance of remaining moderate. Courage, the natural virtue of response to danger, is also supported by a gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that is sometimes called by the same name, courage or fortitude. And it is, I think, the gift that is particularly given to martyrs to face the very fact of pain and suffering, but it's also given to us in even the normal circumstances of life when we find it sometimes difficult or even repugnant to do our duties. There is the matter of asking the Holy Spirit for this gift of the fortitude even to meet our daily obligations. Finally, justice, the virtue by which we rightly order our relationships to one another, trying to seek to find what is right so that we can give another what is due, is something that in spiritual theology we think of as supported especially by the gift of piety, the gift of devotedness. 
For a filial devotion to God, as suggested in the gift of piety, is a matter of having right relationship with God and therefore a cultivation of right relation to others. While this can be cultivated by the natural virtue of justice when we practice giving to another what is due, it is also a matter of praying for the grace to be ready to give to another what is due, especially when we are inclined otherwise. It is for this reason that St. Paul, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, urges us to pray for the gift of the Spirit and to pray so vigorously that we may be raised to the love of God in all that we say and do. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.